You know, one of the great things about the book of Psalms is there are so many Psalms that oftentimes, even if you've read through the whole book, you forget about some of them, or maybe you haven't read some of them in a while, and so you find all these hidden gems. This is one of those. I, I hadn't really read or at least studied Psalm 46 in, uh, in a long, long time, so the last couple of weeks has given me an opportunity to really dig into it, and, and honestly, it's remarkable. It's this declaration of confidence in the strength and love of God. Uh, as I was researching the psalm, I learned it was Martin Luther's very favorite psalm. When he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God, it was flowing from the themes and the message of Psalm 46. What a privilege to spend the next 30 minutes or so with you together in this psalm. We're not exactly sure the precise circumstances for when this psalm was composed, but it's clear it was during a time of crisis in Israel's history. It was likely during a siege on Jerusalem by an enemy army. There is one such siege in Jerusalem's history that matches the words of this psalm remarkably well, and it may have indeed been that occasion that it was written. It was 701 BC, during the reign of King Hezekiah. The mighty Assyrian army, which was to that point the greatest, most powerful army the world had ever seen, it, it was gathered at the doorstep of Jerusalem to uh, surround it and overwhelm it. Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom, Israel, 20 years earlier. They had wiped the tribes of the northern kingdom off the map. And so all that's left is the remnant, the, the, the two tribes in the southern kingdom, including the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, uh, the great Assyrian king, uh, Sennacherib, became angry at Hezekiah, and so he brought the force of his army down to Jerusalem. And I want to invite you to put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish family, a Hebrew family, the night before this invasion. And this was a different kind of warfare from what we're used to today. They would have been able to look out over the countryside and the hills and they would have seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of enemy soldiers. The night before the, the attack, they would have been able to see their campfires, smell their food, hear the laughter and carousing of the enemy soldiers. And, and I have to imagine they're thinking, unless something supernatural happens, this is our last night of freedom and potentially the last night of our lives. So you huddle your family together and you start praying and you start singing. What do you pray? What do you sing? The Psalms. And in particular, this Psalm is the one you want. This Psalm is the one you need. Let's take a look, starting in verse 1, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. What are the two things you need when you're attacked by an enemy? Well, you need a refuge and you need a, some strength. In other words, you need a place of protection and, and you need the, the inner strength to endure, to persevere, or potentially fight back. Verse one is declaring to the Hebrew people and by extension to us this morning, God is these things for us. God's the refuge, God's the strength. It's not the strong walls that have been built. It's, it's not our archers and, and their skill or the might of our army or our fortress towers. God is our refuge and strength. And then even better than that, as the verse continues, God himself is here. 
a very present help in trouble. This phrase, a very present help, is a key phrase of the psalm. In fact, it's a, a key to really understanding the psalm. What this is communicating to us, God is not you know, distant when trouble comes. It's not like he's far away and he's like, well, my best wishes are with you, says God from a distance. Or it's not like he, he went away, but before he went away, he left us some help. He left us some resources and left us some supplies. That, that's not the kind of help God provides. Instead, he is a very present help. He is with us. When trouble comes, you don't have to call God to come to you. God is in the midst of the trouble. God is in the thick of it with you. He is a very present help in trouble. So if the first sentence is true, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, then what does that mean for how we feel? about the trouble? How do the thoughts in our mind, our, our theology about God and what we believe is true about God, how does that shape the emotions when trouble comes our way? Let's see that in the next verse. Therefore, obviously that's an important word, connecting verse one to verse two, we will not fear. And then the psalm deliberately invites the hearer to imagine the most catastrophic events that could possibly happen. And it does that using four of those statements. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, why did the writer or writers of this psalm grab onto images of mountains and seas to convey the idea of, of the, if the worst possible thing were to happen? Because in ancient cosmology, in other words, the way that ancient people understood the, the world around them, the earth and the sea were the two opposing elements of creation. The earth represented everything that was organized, and solid and conducive to life. And the sea represented everything that was chaotic, dangerous, and symbolized death. So with that in mind, think now about what God taught the Hebrew people about the creation. You know, the creation narrative in Genesis chapter one. What, what do you find in the beginning? The earth is formless and void. The spirit of God hovered over the waters. That's interesting. And then what does God do as he begins creation? He starts separating the waters. He starts pushing waters back. He separates the water from the dry land. He creates the earth. And so in Psalm 46, likely the psalmist is thinking back on the creation of everything. And what the psalmist is saying is, even if somehow all the order of God's creation were reversed, you know, even if the mountains, which represent the highest point, the strongest point of the earth, even if those were to be moved into the heart of the sea and the waters were to roar and foam and the mountains themselves tremble at the swelling of the earth, even if the earth loses and the sea wins, even then we do not need to fear because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, in our vernacular, uh, we, we might say it this way, even if all hell breaks loose, even then we will not fear. I mentioned this was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. He, he had a hard life. I don't know if you've ever read or studied his life. I mean, he went through some very 
terrible things. And when, when Martin Luther was at his absolute lowest, he was known to say this, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst. That's the idea of the Psalm. I've been thinking about this little phrase, though the earth gives way. And we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Raise your hand if you have ever experienced an earthquake. Okay, keep your hand up because these are all of our Californians. If you ever wanted to identify, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> kidding, not kidding. All right, hands can come down. Now, welcome. We love having you here, by the way. Sincerely. I've never actually experienced an earthquake, but this is what I've been told. And, and those of you that raise your hand, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're gonna identify with this. I've been told it's one of the most un, unsettling things that you can experience. And this makes sense to me because the, the very thing that your body has become accustomed to, to having as something you can count on and solid and predictable, like your entire life has been shaped around the idea that what's beneath me is firm and solid, all of a sudden it's not. It's unstable, it's, it's shaking. And so I've, I've never experienced an, an actual earthquake, but I think there is something right now that we all just sort of sense going on around us. And, and I'm not talking just about the events of the last couple of weeks. I'm, I'm talking about just years and decades of, of sort of some shifting earth under our feet that we can all sort of identify with this idea that though the earth gives way. And so just by way of, maybe our first application this morning. Let me just talk about this for a couple of moments. Now, every few hundred years, um, and by the way, I'm not a historian, uh, but I, I, I do love history. And this is a pattern that a lot of historians have noticed. Every few hundred years or so, it seems like there's a kind of seismic shift in how human beings think about themselves and think about the world around them. So, Consider the, these huge transitions historically, you know, from the, the, the classical period to the medieval period, or, you know, the Dark Ages, and then later from the, the Dark Ages to the, what historians call the early modern era, which started with the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, and then later on from the early modern era to the modern era, and you have industrialization and all these different things. I mean, life has changed dramatically. The way people think about the world around them has changed dramatically over the centuries. And many historians believe we'll look back on our time now as a transitionary period to whatever comes next, you know, whatever comes after modernism. And, you know, the, there's all kinds of names that some people have given it, the postmodern era, the, the, the information age. The reality is you can't really know something and name something while you're in it. Not this kind of thing anyway. It takes a lot of... of of looking back, you know, and, and, and seeing things at the, the bigger perspective. So whatever period of history this ends up being called, here's some of the characteristics of this transition in our day. It seems to be marked by the loss of confidence in nearly all forms of societal structure and authority. Loss of confidence. So just consider just a couple examples. There's a crisis in political trust. There is a suspicion of any truth claim. There is a shifting of traditional norms in, in all kinds of ways, you know, family norms, gender norms, all kinds of different things. There is a distrust of authority in nearly every sphere. Now, 
these things are not totally unique in our day, but there is some uniqueness because you can go back centuries and some of the things that are changing right now have been sort of taken for granted or, or assumed as foundational for centuries, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we live in a time when, when these foundations of generations past that they took for granted are rapidly losing any sense of solidness. Here's what it feels like from my perspective. I haven't been in an earthquake, but I've been to the ocean. And you know when you're standing in the surf of the ocean and the waves are coming in and out and there's sometimes when that, when that, um, that toe, that the undertow is strong and the wave is going out, you kind of just feel the sand eroding just a little bit underneath you. You know, you're kinda, your toes kind of curl in a little bit as the sand goes away. That's what this feels just a little like to me. And, and here's what I want to say. I'm, I'm going to move on, but I want to say this. Some of us are experiencing sort of the, the earth moving underneath our feet with, with a lot of fear. Some of us are experiencing it with, with anger. Some are experiencing it perhaps with gladness. Maybe some with hope. How are we to engage this? However you are experiencing the changing of the world, the changing of the earth under your feet, God is very present in the midst of it. And he is calling you to faith. He is calling you to believe. He's your refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Think about these things. Consider these things. Pause. Reflect. Let's go on to verse four, verses four and five. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Notice how the imagery of water in the first three verses was, was frightening water, was, was chaotic water, and now in these two verses, the water is a river. What's the difference between a sea and a river? The river has boundaries. You know, the, the God, God has contained the river into its proper channel, and so now the water is something that God is in the midst of. It's no longer chaotic. And what is this river doing? It's making glad the people of the city of God. The city of God, of course, referring to Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting about this. There is no river flowing through Jerusalem. There never has been a river flowing through Jerusalem. There will one day be in the new Jerusalem we read about in Revelation. But from the perspective of this psalmist, they're either, they're looking ahead prophetically, which is possible, or they're describing the river symbolically, which, which I think is one of the things going on. In, in other words, there's a spiritual river and it is the presence of God. And so maybe the psalmist is comparing God's presence in the city like a mighty river that, that gives water and, 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 and protection. You see, you have to have a secure water source when you're under siege. I think there's something else going on here historically that's fascinating. Remember I told you that the closest historical match for the composition of this psalm was likely the siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC by the great Assyrian army. And in that time, 
Jerusalem's only fresh water source was the Gihon Spring. Now here's what you need to know about the Gihon Spring. It's an underground spring that lies just outside the walls of the inner city. This was Jerusalem's only water source, just outside the walls of the city. That is a huge problem when you're under siege. Your water, which you have to have to survive, is vulnerable to the enemy. The enemy can block it off. The enemy could poison it. You are in deep trouble if you don't have access to fresh water when your city is surrounded and your supplies and food are being cut off. Now, in 1837, archaeologists discovered an underground tunnel. And this underground tunnel connects the Gihon Spring, which is just outside the walls of the inner city, to the Pool of Siloam, which is inside the walls of the inner city. Now, this was a very important discovery because this tunnel is mentioned in the Bible. And guess which Hebrew king created the tunnel? Yes, Hezekiah. And so this tunnel is now known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. L- listen to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And then you turn over to the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, which is, you know, our first and second Chronicles. And what do you read about? Hezekiah dug this tunnel in order to move the fresh water from outside the city gates to inside the city gates. And he did it in preparation for the Assyrian siege. Now, I want to show you an image because this is just really interesting to me. Here, here's, here's an illustration. Now, let me point a couple things out. Over here is the, the Gihon Spring right here. And you might be thinking, I thought you said it's, it's outside the, the walls. Well, it, it is the outside the walls of the inner city. This area over here was harder to protect. Let me get a highlighter. This was a harder area to protect over here. It was very vulnerable. So this was the Gihon Spring. Over here is the Pool of Siloam. Now, what we know they did was a a team of diggers started digging this way, and at the same time, a team started digging this way, and in some miraculous way, we're not even sure scientifically how they pulled it off with their technology, they met right here in the middle. There's actually a plaque that was discovered in the tunnel that describes the day that they met, and the plaque was dated to the time of King Hezekiah. Now... What Hezekiah did actually was he destroyed these towers. He covered this all up so it basically was invisible. The spring under the ground could not have even been known by the Assyrian army and all the fresh water was bubbling up out of here. This area was spread out uh, this direction and it was much more easily guarded over here, this part of the city. Now, put yourself back in the shoes of the Hebrew family the night before the invasion. Remember, you're looking out, you're seeing all the campfires, you're smelling the food, you're hearing the laughter and the carousing, you're afraid. What are you singing? What are you praying? You're, you're praying and singing Psalm 46. And you get to this place. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She, the city, shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
from the perspective of the Jewish people at the time, where was the river whose streams make glad the city of God? It was underground. It was this, this miracle of engineering that, that God's great water source under the earth, God's invisible river, had been able to be channeled into the city, God's presence in the midst of the city, God's life-giving power and presence in the midst of the city, and she, the city, shall not be moved. Now, I want to get to a few more verses, and, and we're not going to have time to talk about every single verse, but there's so much here. So let's get to verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. So in the middle of all the chaos, remember, you know, you know Jerusalem's surrounded, you know, and even if the, the, the seas rise up and overcome the mountains and all these kinds of chaotic things, in the midst of all that chaos, one voice cuts through it all. The voice of God. And what does it say about God's voice? He utters his voice. The earth melts. It turns out God is the only one capable of melting the earth. And he will do it in his time according to his word. I really like what Derek Kidner wrote about this verse. He wrote, God's voice will be as decisive in dissolving the world as it was in creating it. Verse seven, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts, Lloyd talked about this um, title last week. It's the God of the armies of heaven. This is the commanding general title of God. He's the commander of the great heavenly armies, the Lord of hosts. The God of Jacob is, is the, gives this, this grace-filled personal identity to this God. You know, he's the God of our forefather, Jacob. And by the way, Jacob was no great man. <laughs> Jacob was a schemer. Jacob was a deceiver. And yet he's the God of Jacob in his grace. The one whose voice can melt the earth is with us. Who can be against us? Selah. Pause. Consider. Reflect on these things. I want to get to one more verse, the most well-known verse of the psalm, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Don't miss the quotation marks included in our English translation. They're helpful because the voice changes from the narrator, the third person, the one who composed the psalm, talking about God in the third person, God is this, God is that, to God himself, the voice of God, speaking words to us. And what does God say to us? Be still and know that I am God. 
it makes a lot of sense that the voice of God here in verse 10 would connect to what verse 6 said about, you know, the, the God utters his voice and the earth melts. Well, what is the voice of God saying? Be still and know that I am God. Now, this takes on even more significance when you understand what the Hebrew means that's translated be still. I had always read it this way, like, you know, the, 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 the word you might use if you're calming a baby, yeah, shh, be still. It's okay. Be still. It's not actually that. It's something altogether different. In fact, when you look at the Hebrew, the words be still is one word in Hebrew, and it could literally be translated, relax your hand. Now, maybe that doesn't make for a very poetic English translation. Relax your hand. So, so you could think about another word, um, release let go. It's like you're holding on tight. Let, let go. And, and I want to keep diving into this. I, I like the way the New American Standard translates it. Cease striving. It's like stop striving. Well, what are we striving? Well, some of us are striving against God. God says stop. Some of us are, are striving apart from God on our own strength. God says stop. Be still. Release. This word is the Hebrew equivalent of the word Jesus used to calm the storm in Mark chapter 4. Remember, he's, he's woken up by his disciples who say, don't you even care that we're dying? And Jesus stands up and he calls out to the storm. What does he say? Quiet. Be still. Now, this same word, or, or in English, these two words, be still, can sound different to your ears depending on your posture toward God. And I want to unpack that. If you're in opposition against God, and by the way, don't we all go through times of our lives? I mean, we all start fundamentally in opposition with God. And then even once we come to peace through Christ, we, we all find ourselves at times in opposition against God. If you're in opposition against God, the Spirit speaks this word to you this morning, be still, and, and here's what it means, let go and surrender. Like, this is, this is the, the word that you would use to command a combatant to drop their weapon. Let it go. Stop fighting. Stop grasping. Surrender. If you're aligned with God, you know, if the, the posture of your heart as best as you're able right now is, is, is wanting to Obey God no matter what he has for you. If you find yourself aligned with God, you, you hear the same word, be still, and it means let go and relax. Let me have it, God says. Give it over to me. Re re release your hands. And the rest of God's message to us is know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And again, you hear those words differently depending on your posture toward God. Derek Kidner again comments, God's firm intention to be exalted is enough to arouse the resentment of the proud 
but the longing and resolve of the humble and also their renewed confidence. I will be exalted over the earth, God says. How does that strike you this morning? I've thought about this psalm a lot this week, and it's gotten very personal for me. By God's providence, God gave me this psalm to work through and read over and over again as I prepared to teach. He gave me this psalm this week because it was a week of chaos in our family. And God used this psalm in my life, and he spoke deep encouragement to me through his words. And as I was thinking about all this, I I started thinking about the process of growing up, which, you know, for some of us might feel like something we've already accomplished. You know, I'm in my mid-40s, and it's like, I I hope by now I'm, I'm grown up. The reality is, in truth, you're never really done. Every home plays out the same drama, and and here it is. Children trying to grow up faster than they should, and parents no longer willing to grow up because they think they already have. Jesus seems to want us to grow up, but grow up in a way that never loses something childlike in us. What do you lose when you're no longer a child? When you no longer think of yourself as a child, what do you lose? Now, now, to be sure, when you're no longer a child, you gain a lot of things. But you also lose a lot of things. You lose innocence. You lose wonder. You lose simplicity. You often lose laughter and silliness and fun? Have you considered this loss? The loss of knowing you're small and feeling safe in your smallness. Think back, for for, for all of us grown-ups, think back if you can, remember the feeling of knowing there is someone nearby you who is bigger wiser, more powerful than you, someone who knows the answers, someone who is unmoved by what feels to you chaotic or confusing, someone who is in control and at the same time is present and cares about you. I'm guessing for many, it's been a long time since you've felt those things. Here is the invitation of Psalm 46. Feel your smallness in the presence of God's greatness. Hear God's voice say to you, be still and know that I am God. Draw near to him in order to know your true size next to his, there you will find peace.
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Think on these things. As you know, throughout this series, we've been walking through psalms from Rob Howard's book, Morning, Noon, and Night. Rob, of course, is here on staff, one of our executive pastors at Fellowship, and today is the last week that we will be in this series, but I want to encourage you to keep going. You know, we've only covered a handful of psalms. Uh, there are many in this book, and, and what I love about this book is the way that Rob has written it. That, you know, the subtitle is Spiritual Exercises for Praying the Psalms. What are spiritual exercises? They're exercises designed to strengthen your faith. We're going to do one of them right now. And it's the one that Rob wrote in connection to Psalm 46. And if you want to look at it in, in the book later, I'm going to lead us through it, but you can find it on pages 80 and 81 of the book. And I want to go ahead and invite the band to come out. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song together. That'll be part of it. But before that, I'm going to guide you through a time of prayer. Now, this exercise, for some of us, might stretch us a little bit, but that's what exercises do. You know, that's why we need them, to stretch us a little bit. So I really want to encourage you to do this this morning. I'm not going to call anybody out. You know, there's going to be no spotlight on anybody in the room. In fact, here's what we're going to do. Most times when we pray, we pray corporately. And what that looks like is, you know, myself or maybe the, the worship leader is leading a prayer that we're all joining in. You know, the same words, we're aligning ourselves with the same words. This time, we're going to guide you differently. I'm, I'm going to guide you through a personal prayer. So I'm going to give you some prompts, and, and we're all going to be praying to God individually, and, and God's going to be listening, you know, to the, the, the chorus of prayers, but at the same time, he's going to be focused right in on you. I'm going to use the same prompts that Rob has written in the book, slightly modified for this setting, and the first thing I want to invite you to do is, is to stand up. And I want you to stand up for two reasons. One is we're about to sing in a minute, and that'll be appropriate. But second of all, you know, the, the Hebrew people prayed standing up. And that doesn't mean we have to always stand up when we pray, but I don't know that we do that enough. And so I want to get our bodies in this posture of, of standing before God as we pray. And now let's go ahead and bow our heads. And I want you to begin just by taking a moment to be still. That is not easy to do in our time and place. Just be still. T take a, a deep breath or two. Ask God to help you focus on this conversation with him. Now, thank you for being with you. He is right here. maybe you're uncertain that he is with you. If so, just say that to him. But if you have the faith to believe that God is here listening to you right now, just thank him for his presence. Next, I want to encourage you to talk to God about something in your life that feels chaotic or out of control. Of course, he already knows all about it. But this is a chance for him to hear from you. Take a minute 
describe the situation to him. Tell him what it feels like to you. Talk to God about how this situation in your life is affecting you. Maybe it is affecting you physically, emotionally, relationally. Perhaps you feel some physical effects, even right now, like like tightness in your shoulders or somewhere else. Maybe you've been short with your family and friends. Maybe you've been up at night worrying. Maybe you're just kind of frozen in place. Talk to God about how this situation is affecting you. Now, remember... Verse 10, God's voice speaking, it starts with the words, be still. Remember that in the Hebrew, the word means to relax your hand. And this is what God is asking us to do. So imagine yourself holding on tightly to your chaotic situation. And and as you imagine that, I I, I want you to to slowly clench your fists together. Just both, both fists, just make a fist, clench them together, just experience that posture, what that feels like, holding tightly onto this situation or some part of it. And just hold that posture for a moment. Tell God what it is that you're holding onto. What are you afraid of? Now ask him for the help to let go. And and as God increases your faith, even in these moments, as you're praying and asking him to help you release this to him, I want to invite you just to slowly release the tension in your hands until they are fully open. As you hold this posture, you can open your eyes. And and, and, and with with our hands open, we're going to sing a song together. We're going to close with this song. And I invite you to worship God together in this posture.